This is Father Gregory Pine. This is Father Joseph Anthony Crest. And welcome to Godsplaining. Thanks to all of those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to Godsplaining wherever you listen to your podcasts. This episode, we're very delighted to have with us Father Josh Johnson from the Diocese of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So, Father Josh, thanks so much for joining us on Godsplaining. Thanks for having me, brothers. All right. I, I imagine that many of our listeners will know you from your own podcast and your work with uh, Ascension Presents. Um, but if you wouldn't mind just uh, saying a word of introduction, who you are, where you're from, what you do, places where people can find your work. Yeah. So Father Josh Johnson from the Diocese of Baton Rouge. I am the uh, director of vocations here in our diocese. And uh, you can uh, find some of my work on uh, podcasts like the Ask Father Josh show on YouTube, the Ascension Presents Ask Father Josh show as well, which is different from the podcast, same name, different show. Uh, and then uh, I have a few books that I've done with them as well, Broken and Blessed, Pocket Guide to Adoration, Pocket Guide to the Sacrament of Reconciliation, and our latest book, Pocket, uh, not Pocket Guide, On Earth as It Is in Heaven, Restoring God's Vision of Race and Discipleship. And uh, that's pretty much me. I, I, just, I love being in Louisiana. I love our land in the Diocese of Baton Rouge. I love our people. And I want to be a saint and form saints. So that's... That's the that's the mission. Dude, Ooh, I was just in Louisiana is. recently for a wedding. We were talking, but it that's God's country down there, man. Louisiana is something special. It is is a beautiful state, and it's got beautiful people. So big ups to your state down there. Um, I have some knowledge of the campus at which you reside on account of the fact that I visited a few times when the uh, campus minister there would have me down for retreats. And then I went with some of your students to World Youth Day, as we have chatted about previously. Uh, but my overwhelming experience of Louisiana was that people care, w care way more about their family than any other place that I have lived before. I was like astounded by how strong family ties were because it came up in everything. Like somebody would be eating something and they'd share it and I'd eat it. I'd be like, this is great. And they'd be like, this is so-and-so's recipe. And um, we've been having it in our family, you know, for the past 124 years. Like, holy smokes, it comes with a genealogy. This is awesome. Um, so I, too. I, actually, I mean, I actually we can just got um, my, a new assignment from the bishop. And the very first thing I did was I asked the parish to send me a map of our geographical boundaries of our parish. So I could begin to pray for the people and, and the land. And I noticed in the geographical boundaries, my grandma's neighborhood, like her house. And so I was like, praise God, my grandma is now my parishioner. Um, so I, I called my dad and I was like, dad, guess what? I'm going to be grandma's pastor. Uh, so super <laughs> excited about that. And uh, yeah, family's everything to us down here. That is indeed. Um, all right. So the one thing you mentioned that kind of left out is that you recently wrote a book and you wrote a, you wrote a book about race specifically. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, yeah, the way that you approach it uh, is, is fascinating because a lot of times when people approach the question of race, they either do so kind of nervously or they do so aggressively but you do so gracedly uh, and specifically with the witness of, uh, you know, servant of God or blessed Augustus Tolton. Um, so t just tell us a little bit about um, the thought, the prayer that went into that project and um, where you're, where you're kind of starting off from. Yeah. So I guess it, it all goes back to my relationship with Jesus. So uh, my dad's um, AME, African-American Methodist Episcopalian, my mom's Catholic, and I was raised in the Catholic church as a child, but I hated the church growing up. I didn't understand the liturgy. I didn't understand the teaching of the church. And so I stopped going to mass uh, in high school, began to go to a lot of different Protestant ecclesial communities, um, as well as live a, a life that, that wasn't conducive to holiness. And uh, then one of my friends 
invited me to a, a conference, Steubenville South, and I reluctantly went to it in 2004 on June 26th at 8 o'clock p.m. in Alexandria, Louisiana, where Father Joseph Anthony was for the wedding recently. And when I went there, mm -hmm. I had a profound encounter with Christ and the Blessed Sacrament. I fell in love with Jesus Christ. He fulfilled my deepest desires. He quenched that, that, that infinite thirst that we all have. I perceived him just, he was everything to me. And so my response to being fulfilled by Christ in the Blessed Sacrament, my response to having uh, that ache satiated, that, that, that thirst quenched was to begin to ask the Lord, well, how can I fulfill your desires? Like, do you have desires? You're God. Like, what do you desire, if anything? And I was drawn, I believe, by the Holy Spirit to, to read and pray with John 17. And in John 17, Jesus Christ, he shares his desires with us. He says, Father, I desire that they may be one. And so I discovered early on that, that Christ longs for unity, that, that he wants uh, there to be a, a deep, profound communion in the body of Christ. And uh, then I began to recognize in our, our church, at least in the United States of America, um, there's a lot of division, right? There's a lot of disunity in the body of Christ, and it must break his heart. And so my desire is to console the heart of Jesus. My desire is to put a smile on his face, um, if at all possible. And so that's when I began my mission of trying to cultivate authentic racial reconciliation where the devil or the enemy um, has fostered disunity pretty well. And it's, it's not, nothing new has happened for hundreds of years from, from slavery um, and, and bishops and priests and sisters and lay leaders, their participation in that to Jim Crow laws and, and bishops and priests and sisters and brothers and lay leaders participation in that to, to even uh, current unjust practices and policies today. And so I, I just believe that in my efforts to console the heart of Jesus, um, that uh, the way that I can do that is, is by fulfilling the Great Commission, which is to make disciples of all nations. And if I make disciples of all nations, which the word nations goes back to the word ethnos in Greek, ethnicities, if I do what he asks us to do, um, then we will all be drawn together um, and to the Eucharist. And if we all come to the Eucharist, then like the early church apostles, I mean, the first mandate Jesus Christ gave them was to sit, watch, and pray. If we all sit, watch, and pray before the presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament, then he's going to inspire us um, with his mind. He's going to give us the logic of Christ to go out into the world and to cultivate and build a civilization of love, uh, which will ultimately bring about unity, not only in the world, but most importantly, unity in the body of Christ. And so uh, that's, that's my heart. That's my mission. And, uh, and that's the, the plan that I, I believe the Lord desires me to do. And my, my bishop has asked me to do it. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's where we're at in my walk with the Lord right now. And why I wrote this book on earth as it is in heaven. It took me six years to write, um, wow. six years of writing and praying and fasting and writing and praying and editing and writing and praying and fasting more. And, um, yeah, I just, I, I believe that this book is a unique gift to, to the church because, um, Discipleship is everything. If we were just living as disciples and obedient to what Christ asked us to do, then there wouldn't be the problems that we have in, in, in at least our nation today. And early on in those early, early pages in the book where you're kind of like setting forward this vision of like, oh, actually, unity is a good thing. And yeah. unity is, is part of the desire of the Lord who himself during his earthly mission was united to the father. Um, yeah. You know, we, we hear it so often, you know, the father and I are one, the father and I am one. Um, you early on in the early pages, you're, you're talking about this vision of, of, of St. John in Revelation, where it's all the tribes, nations, tongues, and things like that. And you asked a, a, a question, and I'm going to kind of just read it. It's like, 
do our small groups, do our RCI programs, adoration chapels, um, Sunday masses, parish, do they, do they resemble St. John's vision of heaven in that way? And that was just such a, a piercing question to say like, well, yeah, what should we expect to see when we roll up into the parish? What should we expect to see when we go there? So helping people to like reorient or like maybe put forward a new lens or optic through which to see the parish. Yeah. How do you encourage that? And, and like, how do you encourage maybe then kind of starting to um, make sure these elements, maybe it's a small group, maybe it's a, a um, an outreach or maybe it's an RCA program or Sunday or our first communion class, but like, yeah. how do you encourage people then to start to kind of reorient how they are looking at these different aspects of the parish? So one of the first things that, that's a great question. Thank you, Father Joseph Anthony. The first thing I always do is point people to scripture because this isn't like mm -hmm. my idea. Um, it's, it's canon law. It's in canon law as well. I mean, that we're responsible for the <laughs> geographical boundaries of our land, but even before canon law, it's the word of God. It's the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God uh, that Jesus Christ, he, he told the disciples to do this. And they did. When they received Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they literally, the very first thing they did, which I think is so important for us to recognize, um, the very first thing they did when they received Holy Spirit was they went out of their little holy huddle, their comfort zone, and they encountered people from Africa and Asia and Europe and they listened to them speak their language. And then God gave them the gift of tongues to communicate their language back to them, to invite them to discipleship. And then they even went further. And Matthew went all the way to Africa, where he died a martyr. And Thomas went all the way to India, where he died a martyr. And Peter went all the way to Europe, where he died a martyr. And the apostles, they went out to all people, to all ethnicities, which again, the fruit of that was seen by John, the beloved disciple in Revelation, every race, nation, tribe, and tongue. And so I first and foremost, always invite people to discipleship so that that way they're hearing Jesus say it. Like the word of God is the voice of God. So when we read the Bible, it's God speaking to us today. So I want you to hear me say this as if this is like my grand idea. I want you to hear Jesus say, go out, go out, Father Gregory, go out, Father Joseph Anthony, and make disciples of all ethnicities, which means you look at the geographical boundaries of your land. Like that's all you're responsible for is, is, is your geographical boundaries and begin to examine who are the people who live here? Like what, what ethnicity are they? What's the socioeconomic background? What ages are they? What religions are they? And, and go meet them where they're at. Like go door to door and meet your neighbors and invite them to a relationship. And from doing that, a lot of them will be like, oh man, this guy's always present to us. He's always here. Uh, they will begin to come. There, there was a sister, her name was Sister Teresa Berlin. I wrote about her in the book. She's been known Mother Angelica for a long time, closer to none. And she perceived the Holy Spirit, asked her to leave the comment to be a, a hermit. And Mother Angelica gave her permission. She moved back home to Louisiana. When she got home to Louisiana, uh, she uh, was like living a cloister life five days a week and two days a week she would go out in the community. And there was a very low income, predominantly black neighborhood that she would just walk around in her full habit. And she would walk around in her habit and she would meet the neighbors on their porch and she would sit down and she would talk to them and ask them their story and they'd tell, ask her uh, their, their lives or whatever. And all these beautiful conversations happened. And so she thought, well, the fruit of these conversations is I should buy this like shack in this neighborhood. She bought a shack in the neighborhood and thinking old ladies would come to it. They didn't. All these kids came and these kids came uh, who she began <laughs> to like mother and teach them how to like pray with scripture. And uh, instead of chanting the liturgy of the hours, they would wrap the liturgy of the hours and she would take them on road trips to go visit the blessed sacrament, all these beautiful things. But the fruit of her, her presence of just being available and present to that particular community was a number of the kids came into the church 
And when they came in the church, their parents and their grandparents who left the church because they were at one point Catholic, but they left because of, uh, and I, I did not write about this in the book, but their, their parents left and their grandparents left uh, because they were pushed away by the people in the church. They were told you have to sit in the back. They wouldn't shake their hands for the sign of peace. And don't get me wrong. I, I don't like shaking hands for sign of peace. I, people's hands are like sticky. I'm like, so my bad. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, but beyond that, it was, it was for other reasons why they wouldn't shake their hands. They, they were told they couldn't participate, participate in ministry. And so all these families left the church. So when Sister Teresa invested her life in this community that was in the boundaries of her parish, all these kids, their parents, their grandparents came into the church. One of her kids became a nun. She's a Holy Family sister today. Uh, so a lot of wow. supernatural fruit simply happened by her going out. So I always encourage people, like literally just look around, examine your Adoration Chapel, who's sitting there, and then look at your boundaries. And if, if there are Spanish-speaking people in your boundaries and they're not in your church, then you better go to the restaurants that they eat at. You better go to the stores that they work at. You better go to the neighborhoods they live in. And God expects you and I to invite them. Uh, the lie from Satan that is very prevalent today is this. And, and uh, this is his voice in the Old Testament, Genesis. He said to Adam and Eve, did God really say that you're not supposed to eat of the, the, the fruit of the tree of, of knowledge or whatever? Did God really say that? Well, you know what he says to us? He says, does God really expect for you to go and make disciples of all ethnicities. God can't expect you to do that because you don't understand their culture. Like you don't understand their language. You, you come from a different class. You come from a different place, a different space. Like there, there's no way that God can expect you to do that. And then we're going to die. And on, on judgment day, God's going to look at us. He's going he's to say, why didn't you invite me to your RSA classes? And why didn't you invite me to your small group Bible studies or your parish missions or retreats or uh, our, our mass? And we're going to say, but God, when do we see you and not invite you to RCAA or not invite you to Bible studies? And he said, when you saw that person who was a different ethnicity and you ignored them or that person who was a different socioeconomic background and you fed them food and gave them drink and gave them clothes, but never asked them to join the church, never asked them to participate in the Bible study, never asked them if they were baptized. Like the Great Commission is go out and baptize and disciple all nations, not just feed them. Like he wants us to invite them to the sacramental life of the church where salvation happens. And so uh, I, I just I think that. And I know I'm going off on tangent right now. I get so excited about this because it's the gospel. But um, yeah, I just think I that if Let's we go. turn to the Lord, then the Lord, he, he gives us the roadmap. And he did it himself. He invested his life. He, he, did, he prayed with people. He worshiped with the apostles. He uh, went on road trips and he went hiking with them. And he went to parties with them and drank wine with them. So we invest life with people in our community. Um, and by investing our entirety of our lives, then we will see transformation in our churches. If our boundaries are diverse, our churches will become diverse as well. So. Sorry, I, I get so, so excited sometimes. Do not apologize. Full send. I love it. I um, love it. No, no regrets or regrets. Um, so my, my thought is, okay, I have a variety of thoughts and none of them are very well formulated, <laughs> but I'm just going to say words and then I'm going to put a question mark at the end and we're okay, going to hope great. for the best. All right. So um, I'm thinking of, you know, sacred scripture speaks of the fact that, you know, in heaven, when we are drawn into this vision that you have described so beautifully, right, there'll neither be Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man, man nor female. All right. So you get a sense of unity. But I think a lot of people, it makes them a little bit nervous because they want to celebrate legitimate diversity. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, you, you see the way the saints are pictured with the engines of their torture, you know, like St. Paul's got a sword and um, St. Lucy's carrying her eyes and stuff like that. So you're like, all right. So so there's still something of our story that that it remains is yet to tell. Or there's there's something of how God saved me, which I can make manifest and communicate in heaven. So when you host these conversations in the 21st century, specifically in America, 
Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of spin on the word diversity and there's a lot of spin on the word unity. How do you project a vision? How do you communicate a vision? How do you preach a vision uh, in which unity and diversity come together in a way that's genuinely Christian? That's a, that's a great question. I, I think you turn to scripture again <laughs> and we go to St. Paul, 1 Corinthians. There are some of us who are called to be arms and there are some of us who are called to be hands and feet and eyes and ears. And at the end of the day, I'm not supposed to be you and you're not supposed to be me, um, but we're supposed to be together. St. Paul says that like, I can't say that I don't need you and you can't say that you don't need me. So like we, we all absolutely need each other. Um, but like, again, in our boundaries of our parish, there are baptized members of the body of Christ who at their baptism, they receive charisms. And my charisms that I received in my baptism were evangelization, writing and leadership. Um, I don't have administration. I don't have hospitality. Um, I don't have a, a number of gifts. But when we recognize what we bring to the table and where we're limited, I, I believe St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, somewhere in the Summa, y'all know better than me, but he talks about humility and reverencing our limitations, um, is we can say, well, this is what I can offer. Now, what can you offer? And even if I don't understand your personality, or even if we come from a different culture, a different background, I need to abide in communion with you. Even if your temperament rubs my temperament the wrong way, as, as you all know, as, as religious, you live in communities of oh, people yeah. who are super different and who you probably can't stand and they can't stand you, but you can't leave them either. Because if you were to depart from <laughs> them, then the body would be lacking. You would not thrive. And so I always encourage people like bring your authentic self with if you're a woman, be a woman. If you're a man, be a man. If you're young, bring your youth. If you're old and wise, bring that age and wisdom. If you're black, bring your culture. If you're um, Italian or Irish, like, bring all that beauty to the table and, and let's give it to the Lord. So the Lord can then use all of this that he's given us because he made he made y'all the way he made y'all. He made me the way he, way he made me. If we give it to him, then he can use it for the kingdom to build a civilization. So we never want to deny anything that the Lord has given us. He created me biracial for a reason because he wants to use this, even the color of my skin to evangelize people in a way that maybe you couldn't. And he, he made you the way he made you to evangelize people in a way that maybe I couldn't. There are lay people in my parish who are sometimes better evangelists because some people have been hurt by the clergy sex abuse scandal. And so they won't listen to a priest, but they will listen to a woman. And so we have to invite everybody to the table so that we can communally discern together, how can God use our story, our experience, our culture, our talents, our resources, our gifts, our supernatural charisms, how can the Lord use all this to form a generation of saints? Um, and so we must be open to everybody. Everyone must have a seat at the table. And the second we begin to deny people a seat, that's whenever our parishes and our communities and our land is going to suffer, unnecessarily so um, because of our selfishness. As, as we invite people, as we give them that seat, you, you talk about in a really beautiful way the importance of being able to listen to the other person, oh, yeah. to listen so to necessary. that story that they bring with them to the table, to listen to that history. Maybe it's some of the baggage, right? But maybe it's some of the glory stories, but like to be able to listen to that. Um, but you write really, really beautifully on the ability to become active listeners, better yeah. listeners, to learn how to be present to the other and to listen to them. But you connect it actually first to prayer. And, and how that's actually the first step of being a better listener. So can you like kind of make that in connection and, and talk about like how prayer plays into the ability to listen to the other as they bring their story to the table? 
Yeah, prayer changes everything. The way we pray affects the way that we live. And one of the, the most holy uh, disciples of Christ in our lifetime was St. John Paul II. Uh, mm. the, the man loved Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. He loved to pray. And because he was so accustomed to listening to the Lord in prayer and not just speaking, uh, when he would go around the world, he would oftentimes just listen to people and ask them to speak and to share their story. Um, and he would remember, he would remember people's stories. And so um, the normative model of prayer for all disciples, whether you're a layperson or a priest or religious, according to the documents of the church is Lexio Divina. Um, and Lexio Divina has, has four traditional parts. We read the word. What does it say? We meditate on the word. What does it say to me? We, uh, we pray with the word. We have a conversation with God about what it says to me. And we contemplate the word. We sit in the presence of God as he looks at us and we look at him. And then some disciples have added a fifth step, a concrete resolution that follows your time of reading and meditating and praying and contemplating the word of God. And so I encourage people to go out in the geographical boundaries of your parish, encounter people who are different from you. Like after you've looked at your Bible study, and you've looked at your, your masses, and you've looked at your RCA program, you've looked at your adoration chapels, you've looked at your food pantry, and you see who's there and who's not there, go find someone who's not there and sit at their feet and engage in them a conversation. Try to cultivate a relationship with them. And as they speak, they may share things with you that are difficult to hear, things that may have not been your experience, things that your parents taught you something mm -hmm. other than. Mm -hmm. But instead of like listening to argue or, or come back with, well, this is what I would say to that, like fast from speaking, just fast. fast. It, it's, it's one of the most difficult things to do, but God gave us two ears and one mouth. And so we're supposed to listen more than we speak anyway. And so fast from having to comment on something. And even if we disagree with what they're saying, like, listen well, so read it. What do they say? Meditate on it. God, what did that say to me? Talk to God about it. Bring it to prayer. Journal about it. And then sit with the Lord and come up with a follow-up question to continue the conversation, to keep it going. That way, the person that you've now entered into a relationship with, they will know that you've heard them. And they'll be better able to listen to you whenever you speak sometimes even difficult truths. Listening is transformative. Archbishop Hughes, he did this in the Archdiocese of New Orleans. He recognized that there were a number of black Catholics who were leaving the church. In Louisiana, we have like the most black Catholics in the nation. And he was recognizing his archdiocese, a bunch were leaving. And so instead of like assuming like they must be leaving because they want this or they don't like that, like he invited a bunch of them to come and just talk. And he just listened. And by his listening to what they shared and decision to pray with it, he was able to, to, to realize something he didn't know which was that there was a, a country club in his archdiocese that in the year 2007, eight or nine, I forgot which one it was, maybe 2009, it had a, a practice, an unwritten rule that black people couldn't be members. This is in the seventies or the eighties or the nineties. This is like the two thousands. And they still have this practice that black people cannot be members. And a lot of parishes in his archdiocese were hosting events at this country club. And so the black parishioners who were faithful in ministry, were lifelong parishioners, uh, were tithing to the parish, they would go to their pastors and they would go to their DREs and their youth ministers and say, can we please stop hosting our events at this place that where we're not invited? And their pastors and their DREs and youth ministers wouldn't listen. And they kept hosting it there. So they were like, you know what? We're just going to leave. If, if, we don't, if you don't respect us enough, we're going to leave the church. And so Archbishop Hughes, he first reached out to the country club and said, hey, can y'all please like change this practice? This is ridiculous. It's 2000 something. And they said no. And so he wrote a pastoral letter calling out racism and saying that no Catholic church, school, institution, organization, or apostolate can host any events in his archdiocese at any place that has not allowed diverse membership. And when he did this, a lot of Catholics, it, the, 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 the letter was read in all the parishes. A lot of Catholics weren't even aware 
And when they became aware, they're like, oh, that's the country club I go to. So they pull their money or they pull their money. And guess what the country club did? They changed their practice. So this, it took the church listening and then praying with what they heard and then acting to change something in the world. And then when they changed their practice, these black Catholics felt like they were heard, seen, known, loved and respected. And they came back to the church um, and invested their lives back in that community. And so uh, that's the power of just of listening well and, and believing stories that, again, these are things that some people are like that still happens. I'm like, yeah, on LSU's campus, it still happens. There are frats that are that, that way. They have practices in Louisiana. In my diocese, there's a swimming pool that's still segregated. And it's able to be segregated because it's a practice where they say anyone can apply to be a member here. But throughout its entire history, which began after the Civil Rights Act, which uh, took away the Jim Crow laws, uh, throughout the entire history, anyone can apply, but they've only accepted white people. And so they say, well, we're not we're not doing anything wrong. Well, yeah, yeah, you are. You know what you're doing. Right. And so uh, these things still happen. And when we discover them by listening we're invited by the Holy Spirit to then collaborate with other members of the body of Christ, again, using our talents, gifts, and resources to address them so that we can cultivate unity in society, which would then bring about a deeper unity in our church parishes as well. So follow up to that, um, just a kind of small thought, just like a, a humble thought. Uh, I, I suspect that many of the people who read your book, the majority of the people who read your book were probably, you know, white people. And then like the majority of people who probably listen to this podcast, although I've never seen our demographics, I don't even know if we collect, we can't possibly collect demographics. I uh, imagine our white people. And I, I suspect that like a lot of people uh, feel sympathetic, but don't know what to do. I think it's a natural human response is to want to do something, but not knowing how to channel that desire to do something, to feel a little bit like, scared, overwhelmed, bewildered, saddened, uncomfortable, yada, yada, thus and such. You know, you can kind of just project it out. Um, and like, you know, like a lot of the, I'm, I'm sure there are folks who are listening who are in like Providence, Rhode Island, which is not an especially diverse, racially diverse community, or they live in the middle of, you know, like Dubuque, Iowa or something like that. Um, what are things that, you know, like people, people want to be part, like people want to yeah. be, they want to contribute, they want to be empowered, they want to be emboldened, and they want to address, you know, certain injustices insofar as those injustices make it hard to preach the gospel and for people Amen. to receive the good news for like, you know, to be drawn into the worship of the one true God. Um, so like, you know, maybe we, we yeah, we're kind of coming to the end of our time, but a word for these folks. Yeah, th this great question, Father. So the very first mandate that Jesus Christ gave in the um, to the apostles after their ordination at the Last Supper was to sit, watch and pray before his presence in the blessed uh, not, before his body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Garden of Gethsemane. So that rule applies to us as well. We are invited to first and foremost sit, watch, and pray before the presence of Christ, mm -hmm. body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Blessed Sacrament. Prayer must precede everything. All the greatest saints, Mother Teresa, St. Catherine Drexel, St. John Paul the Great, Josephine Bakitha, Martin de Porres, they were all rooted in intentional, consistent time with Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. And through their prayer, they were inspired to then go out and do these great works that they did in the world that did cultivate and build up the body of Christ on earth as it is in heaven. So the first thing is to, to simply pray. Second thing is to read, like learn. So uh, the USCCB has written a number of, of letters um, about racism uh, in America, about racism that happens within people in the church. Uh, and so to begin to read those letters and pray with them, uh, get my book on earth as it is in heaven and uh, from Ascension Press 
and read it and learn what you can do, right? So study is important. Going to places like the Equal Justice Initiative Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, it's a beautiful museum that, that shows the story of slavery and Jim Crow to the current situation we have today, are visiting plantations, um, which I like to call slave labor camps because they were these terrible places where people were brutally raped and murdered um, for a very long time. And there are a few plantations, like the Whitney Plantation here in Louisiana, that tells the story of the slaves, like the real story of what really happened. Um, and so like learn, uh, then I encourage people to go out and invest in Bible studies with people in their uh, workplace environments, in their neighborhoods, um, in their schools. And so even if your family is not diverse, there might be people in your neighborhood who are, or your, in, your, in your workplace environment who are, and invite them to do a Bible study with you. And through doing a Bible study with them, you can listen to them, practice listening, and learn from them as you grow in prayer together what's going on that you might not know about and how might you be inspired by the Lord to work together. Uh, and then I always encourage people uh, to uh, to plug into uh, other things that are happening, um, like good protests. Like I go on the March for Life once a year. The March for Life is a protest against abortion. Abortion is one of the the, the largest reasons why a number of babies, including black babies, are, are killed every year. Um, but also join other peaceful protests that happen across the nation against racial injustices. Um, that's what the saints said. There's so many saints who preceded us in our walk toward eternity um, who were people of prayer. Um, they were people who, who learned and who studied well. There are people who discipled others and walked with people in uh, discipleship. And there are people who protested injustices like Archbishop Hughes did um, of the country club and his archdiocese. Uh, so those are just a few things you could do, but it all begins. The first and foremost thing it must begin with is prayer. And, and after you pray, God might even invite you uh, to be an intercessor. And so if you're in a place where like there's like no diversity ever, like, OK, just start praying a rosary for the nation like offer up masses for the nation, pick up the liturgy of the hours, which is the prayer of the church and offer up your divine office for healing and for racial reconciliation in our nation. Uh, our prayers are powerful. Prayer changes everything. And the witness of the saints shows us this. And so uh, the first thing we can all do is root ourselves in prayer and then trust that the Lord will lead us from there. Um, but encouragement would be to get the book, pray with it and to recognize, and I said this in the beginning, I'm not perfect. I'm not infallible. I might not totally be inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so you're free to disagree with what I write about in the book. You're free to challenge me and critique me and say, Father Josh, I think you're off. That's cool. Like I'm in constantly reformation in my walk toward eternity. But I do think that the book can give us uh, a, a gift to help us to console the heart of Jesus and try our best to cultivate unity in the body of Christ on earth as it is in heaven. Boom. Um, I recently, okay, this will seem unrelated for like seven seconds and then it'll okay. get related. But um, I live in a little backwater called Freeburg, Switzerland, and I am a tall human being. I'm six feet, four inches. So sometimes when I see somebody who's taller than me, I just stop them and then shake usually his hand. And I'm just like, congratulations. You are the first person I've seen in a long time who is taller than me. But I feel like I'm having a similar moment now because you are one of a rare few people in the world who speak faster than I do. Well, Mike Schmidt does as well. Follow Mike Schmidt. <laughs> <that's laughs> so, no, it's incredible. And, and you pack it with glory. So it's a gift. Uh, obviously, the Lord is blessing the work of your hands, uh, the preaching, you know, that, that he has made to kind of well up from within you. Thanks. So for, for our listeners, please do uh, check out On Earth As It Is In Heaven, which is available from Ascension Press. And, you know, take these words to heart, which Father Josh shared with us. Obviously, the the first steps that we take are going to be small steps, but they're steps, right? And steps are steps. <laughs> I feel like, uh, I mean, it's, it's good to know that when we can, you know, when we begin a thing or we set about a thing that we can't expect much from ourselves, but we can expect much from God.
So again, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Uh, then just a, a final word. Uh, thanks to all of our supporters. If you'd like to tie through our work, please do check us out at patreon.com slash godsplanning. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review, all of which help to get the podcast out to more listeners who, please God, will have their lives changed as a result. Uh, please visit godsplanning.org to shop our merchandise and to get dates and information about upcoming events, the most exciting of which are the three retreats to be hosted at the end of July and the beginning of August. So you are most cordially invited to those retreats, uh, and we, uh, we hope to see you there. So that way, the communion which we foster in this digital space might become yet more real, uh, yeah, in a real space. All right, so that's all from us. Our prayers are for you. Please pray for us, and we'll catch you next time on Godsplanning.